Um, well, first off, thank you very much for having me. Uh, thank you for organizing the series. Um, and uh, uh, just your mention of Joel McKeer, uh, I presume many of you have already read A Culture of Growth, uh, but if you have not, uh, I really strongly encourage it. I mean, all of Joel McKeer's work is great, uh, but that book in particular really stands out to me. Um, uh, Stripe is a um, uh, is an online payment system, uh, or at least we started out as that, uh, and, and now we're building a whole host of functionality sort of besides. So in really simple terms, you can imagine uh, you want to accept a credit card payment over the internet. We try to provide the best and easiest to use uh, system for doing that. Really, we think of ourselves as building a broader programmable system for uh, moving money on a global basis. And so kind of as the world is increasingly moving to coordinating its economic activity through software, uh, you need some kind of system, uh, some platform that you can uh, ask to move money on your behalf uh, because uh, you know, you're probably not going to go build all the infrastructure uh, that you need to do that yourself in-house. Uh, so something kind of like AWS for the movement of money. And we started doing that about 10 years ago. Um, we, uh, we now have uh, millions of customers. Um, and uh, while our revenue is not public, uh, in as much as you can trust uh, you know, Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalists, which you know, is, is clearly uh, not completely, uh, but uh, our nominal valuation uh, at least uh, was, I guess, most recently uh, $36 billion. Um, uh, but you know, we don't, I mean, for us, valuation is sort of a, a not that relevant, at least in the short-term metric. Uh, really, what uh, you know we care about is that we're able to be a, a catalyst for and hopefully an accelerant of uh, economic opportunity uh, and, and economic activity more broadly. A, a metric that we care a lot about and we sort of um, try to assess as best we can is what's our counterfactual significance. You know, we talk about the idea of growing the GDP of the internet, uh, and so we often ask businesses, do you think you would exist if Stripe didn't? Um, uh, or for companies that incorporate with Atlas, uh, which is a, a system we have for incorporating. We ask, would you have started your company if Atlas did not exist? Um, and we're always sort of in our product development trying to think about, well, what can we build and what can we do that causes activity to happen that would not in fact otherwise occur? Excellent. All right. Thanks for that introduction. Let's dive right in uh, to some big topics and um, let's talk about research and development. Actually, so I'd like to ask you about Fast Grants. So a couple of months ago, um, you launched, uh, along with some others, launched this program, Fast Grants for COVID-19 Research. Um, it's been, what, at least two months since then. Uh, yeah. Give us an update. Um, what has happened? What have you learned from it? Will it become something permanent? Um, what is the, will you scale it? What does the future look like? Okay, so where Fast Grants came from is uh, we realized back, um, uh, well, in backtracking even more, like many of us, in February, we were paying attention to, um, uh, to, to, to COVID, uh, and so the data seemed quite concerning. You know, March came, and, and you know, it, it really, it was, uh, <laughs> the concerning cases were, in fact, you know, obviously really happening, not only in China, but in many more places besides. And by April, uh, it, it felt that, uh, man, if only we had uh, kind of uh, li listened to um, maybe our, uh, our sort of rational faculties uh, in January or February, we might have uh, more actively prepared for this. Uh, uh, by April, it felt that things were already uh, sort of, um, uh, the, the, the pandemic was, was, was really quite bad and we were already too late uh, in our response. Um, and so then we started to kind of ask ourselves, uh, this is uh, me, Tyler, uh, and my, uh, my partner, Silvana, who's a professor at Stanford. Um, we started asking ourselves, well, if we were to do something, you know, what, what, what might be effective? Uh, we realized that the NIH and the NSF uh, and, and you know, a lot of other sort of, well, the NIH and the NSF are obviously the leading scientific grant-making uh, entities uh, in the U.S., 
Uh, there are many other kind of private foundations uh, that, that are also uh, themselves very active. We realize that, that these government bodies, especially, but also many of these uh, sort of private bodies, uh, are really not adapted uh, to doing things quickly. Uh, you know, I think they support a lot of really good work. Uh, but they're, uh, they're, they're, they're not got good at responding when speed is of the essence. And so we actually reached out to uh, the NIH and the NSF to try to get a sense for uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, what it was that they were doing to respond to this, you know, pandemic that is you know, setting back global civilization. Uh, I think it's uh, sort of not hyperbolic to say. Um, and uh, we were struck, and, and this is actually kind of public, uh, you know, back in April, if you just search the NIH's public database, uh, for how many uh, COVID uh, or coronavirus uh, grants had been made at the time, uh, I think the number as of April was, was, was 12 uh, or something like that. Um, and so we realized that, that it, it, it may actually be possible uh, because so few organizations are suited to moving quickly to do something that would enable and unlock scientists uh, to, uh, to, to get started more quickly, to run trials more quickly, to uh, uh, test you know, potential new drugs more quickly. So uh, a week after this idea, we launched Fast Grants. Uh, uh, initially, I think at launch with uh, $12 million, uh, some of which uh, myself and my co-founder John uh, provided, uh, some of which was, in fact, the majority of which was provided uh, by, uh, by, by third-party donors. Um, uh, uh, they have sub subsequently been joined by a significant number of other donors. And within, I don't remember the exact details, but within about two weeks, maybe three weeks, we'd made on the order of 100 grants and so I think we were, I don't want to definitively claim this, and in fact, I, I hope we're wrong, but we, we became, as far as I know, uh, the leading funder, uh, at least by a number of grants uh, of COVID science in the world. And, and these were really top scientists. Uh, when we published our open call, uh, we, um, uh, we, uh, we received 4,000 applications uh, within the first week. And you know, as many of you know, you know, if you ever put up an application on the internet, uh, you know, where anybody can apply, you know, 50% plus of what you get won't be that good. We were astonished. The vast majority uh, of the applications, uh, like let's say at least 3,000 of them, were very sensible, very plausible, uh, uh, perhaps even plausibly worth funding. Uh, and so, uh, fast grants uh, until the promise they would re respond with a definitive funding decision uh, 48 hours subsequent to the application. So we had some, you know, pretty intense. Uh, a reviewing to do, which uh, Silvana, my partner, led along with a, a cohort of other volunteers. Anyway, so made the grants. Uh, they're now off the races, uh, and uh, we actually are just in the process of receiving their kind of second month of updates, um, and uh, and it's you know, proving really encouraging. Uh, uh, there are really promising drug candidates already developed. Uh, there are you know things that are already moving to trials. There are vaccine candidates, uh, and so uh, um, you know. If one posits uh, or, or accepts that COVID is one of the uh, sort of greatest threats to progress uh, in this calendar year, uh, you know, uh, we were happy to be able to, you know, do something uh, you know, small, but hopefully helpful on the margins. And uh, what, have you, what have you learned from Fast Grants? What's been most surprising hmm. or unexpected for you? Um, well, a big lesson in general is, um, like, you know, I started out uh, in, uh, in rural Ireland uh, and, I, I, you know, I, so I, I kind of felt far from sort of where things were happening. And, and I guess I sort of assumed that in the places where things are happening, you know, really enlightened people are making really enlightened decisions uh, and are, you know, just the, the adults are in charge. Uh, and um, again and again uh, over the last, uh, I guess, through my adulthood, uh, I've learned the lesson that um, there's nobody behind the curtain uh, and 
I think that's simultaneously good and bad news uh, in the sense that um, uh, it's bad news <laughs> that, you know, if you want to rely on, you know, super smart people taking care of things that you might think are a really big deal, uh, that you should not assume that they exist. It's good news in the sense that I think you can uh, upgrade your estimation of your own potential impact, you know, if you choose to pursue one of these things. Uh, and I don't want to sound at all dismissive uh, of other efforts that are taking place or, you know, kind of um, self-aggrandizing for fast grants. Like, you know, others did and would eventually have acted. And, you know, we'll, we'll see sort of in the, in, in the sort of um, uh, over time and how much fast grants appears to have actually mattered. Uh, but at least as of April, uh, it sure seemed that the set of people uh, who were committed to moving really quickly uh, to, uh, to actually acting on supporting and funding the top scientists in the world to solve our you know, top medical challenge was actually exceptionally small. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, um, Berkeley uh, published an article now about maybe a month ago saying that uh, uh, they'd applied to, or Berkeley scientists had applied for all kinds of repurposings of, an, of uh, existing NIH grants they already had. They at the time had not heard back uh, to any of those uh, uh, applications. But uh, again, as of the time, I think four or five Berkeley scientists, maybe even more, uh, had been funded by fast grants. Uh, and so uh, uh, I guess this was um, uh, a very potent example of this broader uh, curtain phenomenon, but, but by no means the only one. Yeah. The great corporate research lab, like think Bell Labs, Xerox Park, is that a thing of the past? You know, has it, has it sort of already seen its heyday? Um, yeah. You know, and if so, was that natural? Like, is there something new we should be moving on to or should we be trying to bring that back? Yeah, I wonder about that a lot. Um, and obviously there are kind of various theories on it. One thing that I think uh, is underemphasized in many of these histories, and while there are a few good histories, I always wish uh, there were more ones that were somehow kind of more systematic. Those that exist tend to be sort of very, you know, narrative and kind of anecdote uh, oriented. And th those are valuable, but they're somehow uh, insufficient. Um, one thing that I think is underemphasized is they competed on the basis of compensation. Like they just paid more uh, than other uh, uh, potential sources of employment. Um, and so, for example, Park, their strategy for aggregating the best computer scientists in the world was to pay them more than they would have been earning in academia. And in the 70s, uh, you know, you weren't going to go work at Google uh, and earn you know, millions of dollars a year because uh, there, 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 there were no Google. Silicon Valley hadn't really sort of left the launch pad. Um, and I think to a certain extent, I mean, to a significant extent, the same thing applies uh, to Bell Labs. And certainly Bell Labs was quite explicit that their strategy was, again, to, to compensate really well uh, and to present sort of more favorable employment uh, than, you know, maybe alternatives uh, within academia. And so I think there's a question as to whether that's in fact possible today. It could be the case that because there are so many kind of um, high return um, uh, sort of um, uh, uh, you know, loci for you know, super talented people to go and deploy their talents that you can never quite aggregate uh, to the same extent or in the same way. Um, uh, you know, the, the counter argument obviously would be that, well, you know, maybe there was a, a kind of thinking, maybe uh, a, a sort of ambition, maybe uh, a, a, um, a willingness, you know, uh, in monopolies like Bell Labs or, or, or excuse me, like Bell or, or, or Xerox uh, to, um, to you know, pursue things sort of substantially outside of their domains. Maybe we're somehow lacking that style of thinking, and, and you know, there's been some academic literature trying to make some of those cases. Um, my guess is that it's somewhere in between. It does feel to me that you just could not do park in the sense of I don't think you could aggregate the best computer scientists in the world anywhere today. 
um, uh, there, there are just uh, sort of too many places uh, competing for their um, uh, for the, the, those top tier individuals. Um, but it does simultaneously seem strange that um, uh, there are uh, <laughs> that it's hard to think of um, any major successes uh, from uh, these kinds of labs uh, over the say the last you know ten or fifteen years. And we'll we'll see to what degree Google ends up supplying uh, some of these. I mean, obviously they they've attempted some um, uh, some sort of similarly ambitious efforts, uh, and time will tell. You know, if they if they um, end up in that illustrious set. So suppose you were asked to write uh, a report on the future of science and research in this country, like the uh, Endless Frontier memo that Vannevar Bush created in 1945, uh, you know, what, what would you say in summary? I mean, it's funny, I, I have huge admiration for Bush, uh, and yet I also think that um, the Endless Frontier sort of, um, in a sense, sowed the seeds of the destruction of, well, that, that's kind of hyperbolic and exaggerated, but, but um, by proposing a centralized uh, uh, federal agency uh, uh, actually creates some very kind of pernicious incentive structures and dynamics. And the main thing that I would do if writing such a report today uh, is to argue for kind of heterogeneity, uh, decentralization, and competing approaches. Um, uh, I don't know what the best approach is in a kind of singular sense. Uh, I don't know that it's knowable, and I suspect that it does not even exist. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, whatever it is will in fact kind of evolve through time. Uh, and so, you know, first order, I'd probably say that there should be, you know, at least 10 bodies. Uh, they should, uh, you should have some kind of mechanism that incentivizes them to pursue approaches that are in fact substantially different. Um, and, uh, and and then sort of assess toward the right time horizon, where on the one hand, you do sort of reallocate capital to those which are proving more and less successful. And there is in fact an incentive to, to perform well, um, but, but simultaneously, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that can't be, uh, you know, excessively short-term oriented uh, because, you know, for science, it's simply too, too hard to, um, to, to uh, assess the results. Um, uh, it's worth noting that uh, federal funding of science uh, or, or you know, federal funding being kind of the predominant funding source is a, a fairly uh, a recent um, phenomenon uh, th that only became the case in the second half uh, of the 20th century, sort of towards the 60s uh, and 70s. And before then, it was far more diversified, far more variegated. Uh, you had industrial sources, you had state sources, you had scientists, kind of quasi-entrepreneurs themselves, sort of uh, soliciting funding from you know, all sorts of um, uh, locals uh, and, uh, and sort of immediate, um, their immediate surrounds. Uh, and, uh, and the federal government getting more closely involved was actually quite controversial. And many scientists at the time opposed it, uh, I think accurately foreseeing that much of the sort of, um, the, the kind of hegemonic effects that in fact have transpired uh, would be, uh, you know, second order problems, uh, meaning the first order effect might not be, might not be as beneficial uh, as expected. Yeah, very interesting. And I'm coming to some similar conclusions myself. Um, the more I study sort of the history of, of research and how it's evolved. Um, you mentioned metrics and sort of how we measure this stuff. So that's a good segue into another thing I wanted to ask you, which is, um, you know, if you had to give society like a progress KPI um, or maybe a small set of KPIs, and for those who aren't into the business lingo, that stands for key performance indicator. You know, what's on your like, you know, if you were running progress for the world or for the country, what's your, what does your dashboard look like? What are the, what are the key metrics on there? Um. I mean, 
while all of the critiques of GDP and GDP per capita are valid, I, I think, you know, if one just had to choose a single metric, uh, I really think GDP is, uh, is pretty good. Like the, um, uh, I, I redid this analysis recently. Like I think the, uh, the, the sort of the correlation between a GDP per capita and self-reported happiness is, uh, is like 0.76 um, and, uh, you know, uh, and GDP against life expectancy is, is, is even higher. It's, it's, it's above 0.8. And so if you, if you, you know, like a sort of, um, uh, uh, like a, uh, uh, some kind of, um, uh, you know, true believing product manager, if you were just to re reduce to a single metric, uh, I think that would, uh, would not be a bad one. Having said that, it is clearly kind of too simplistic for a complete dashboard. Um, I, I, I guess, okay, you, you want metrics around the, uh, I, the, the way I sort of imagine the kind of production function of, uh, of I guess, progress is uh, there's, um, uh, some set of characteristics of the culture. Uh, to some degree, that applies to kind of the culture in a broad sense. To some degree, it might apply to the culture of certain subgroups, certain kinds of individuals, and so on. You know, a separate thing that I believe about progress uh, is that many of the relevant dynamics are actually less about individuals and more about the dynamics of small groups and sort of really productive clusters of individuals. And certainly, that's kind of what you tend to see in the past. And we can come back to that in a little bit if you like. And um, so, anyway, I'd have, I would think a lot about sort of how does one assess culture? I mean, clearly, you. Um, Sort of uh, the degree to which culture supports heterodoxy, the degree to which culture, uh, you know, um, uh, welcomes views that you know differ to its preconceptions. You know that, that worked well for uh, you know for for the for the, for the Dutch, uh, you know, for the Scottish, for the English, in, in sort of various ways, you know, imperfectly. Um, but I think those were kind of part of the preconditions for much of the growth that ensued. So stuff about culture. Um, uh, it's kind of second uh, and, and importantly uh, uh, about um, just like basic liberal values uh, in, in that sort of, you know, can anyone's ideas be taken seriously uh, or do, do we have all sorts of kind of biases and preconceptions that sort of uh, exclude various individuals from the outset? Um, secondly, uh, you know, metrics about the scientific process, you know, we were just discussing that a little bit, but uh, I would really think hard about what will we look at to tell to what degree the scientific process uh, uh, is working. And actually, you know, Michael Nielsen and I wrote this piece, you know, some of you are probably familiar with it about sort of the, the dynamics of, of sort of progress in science. And I don't know that we came up with any metrics that should make that dashboard on an ongoing sense. But I do think that, you know, if we as a society and a civilization really care you know, take science seriously, I think we should be thinking about how to tell whether it's getting kind of more or less healthy uh, or how we should even start to kind of think about that question. So anyway, stuff about science, um, uh, stuff about uh, entrepreneurship, uh, which I see as kind of uh, the, the, the deployment uh, uh, sort of mechanism for much of the discoveries uh, of, uh, of science. And, you know, I, I don't think those are kind of fully disjoint in that, you know, often the discoveries of entrepreneurship sort of feed back into science in some way. And so there's kind of codependency. Uh, but uh, but I, 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 it, it is, uh, I think, certainly noteworthy that, um, that, that the locations that tended to be uh, sort of um, uh, uh, to, to foster entrepreneurship in the domain of ideas also tended to foster kind of actual business uh, uh, entrepreneurship as well. Um, uh, and, and then I'd probably look at maybe... Um, you know, economists talk about sort of, uh, you know, uh, um, looking at, I mean, you can look at some inequality by wealth or by income. You can also look at inequality uh, in terms of consumption. And I, I guess I would probably be interested in looking at sort of consumption inequality or, or consumption kind of metrics of maybe, you know, the top 1% and the median person or the, the, the bottom 25% uh, or percentile or something in the sense that um, I think the top 1% or, you know, some number close to the top gives you kind of 
intensive progress? Like, kind of, is, is anyone getting better off uh, in a really material way? Um, uh, and then at the median, or, or again, choose your other percentile, you tell, okay, well, how effectively are we actually distributing it? Uh, and, uh, and both, uh, of course, uh, are, are important. So roughly speaking, I think that's how I'd structure it. But I, I'd actually, man, uh, I, I, would, I would love to read any blog post on this topic uh, of what should that dashboard look like? And I'm sure I'm forgetting things that, you know, once I read them, I think, man, that's, that's very obvious and totally true. Great. Okay. Well, if I, if, I, if I run across anybody who has a blog about progress, I will let them know that you like <laughs> I know of one very good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. You mentioned in particular uh, science and sort of the measuring science and is science slowing down? Um, you and Michael Nielsen had your contribution to this um, in the Atlantic. Um, one of the metrics that people use to sort of argue that science is slowing down is this kind of like research productivity measured as, you know, to keep Moore's law going at like a constant percentage um, improvement each year. Uh, we have like this exponential growth in the number of researchers and research dollars. Um, so that's sort of one argument that science is slowing down. Scott Alexander had this sort of counter post um, and his take on it was, quote, constant progress in science in response to exponential increases in inputs ought to be our null hypothesis. Uh, so what do, what do you think on this issue? Yeah, um, <laughs> so sorry, but Michael and I actually debated this question quite a bit um, and First off, my, my recollection is that in Scott's post, he actually acknowledges that, um, that that kind of conflicts to some extent with what we've seen, where that sort of implies a kind of singularity where, you know, as we require exponentially, you know, increasing inputs, uh, then at a certain point, you know, we obviously sort of can no longer sustain that. And so you would then expect a kind of asymptote uh, in... Um, uh, in, uh, in, in realized progress. Uh, and that obviously isn't uh, what we've in fact seen. And of course, if you look at sort of log GDP per capita over time in the US, uh, it looks sort of really shockingly constant. Um, and so uh, I guess my, <laughs> my, my first view is that either there's a significant anomaly there where you know, uh, the, the prior that, that Scott thinks we should have conflicts with the realized data, or you know maybe you might say that well uh, we actually have been increasing inputs exponentially and you know it's just about to run out in the not too distant future you know that could be true uh, but again if that is our prior then I think we actually need to revise the other prior we have which is you know I think uh, that the world is going to get better at a you know a constant ish rate uh, I think that is so, sort of the, the the base expectation among people and you could have you know a, a more sort of Nietzschean view that actually you know, it, it's, it's either going to stop or you know, I guess if it stops with current economics, at least, then it's, it's probably in fact going to sort of crash because I'm not sure that, you know, other you know, distribution mechanisms we have can sustain an economy without growth. Uh, so, um, uh, so, so, so again, I, I, th I think um, uh, if he's right, uh, I think it actually has you know, pretty material additional consequences that we'll have to start uh, really reckoning with. Uh, you know, as to whether that in fact should be our prior, um, I guess I, I sort of disagree and um, I always think that I should probably try to sketch out that argument in more detail and I think there are probably some useful geometric uh, intuitions there but obviously the basic point is that um, you know and, and many people uh, Romer, Jones uh, uh, and others uh, have kind of made it is you know what is interesting about and important about ideas uh, is there uh, they can in principle be instantly deployed um, uh, to you know, produce some kind of gain uh, across an arbitrarily large economy. Um, and so you know, when you uh, discover uh, you know, penicillin or ibuprofen or whatever, as either an individual or a very small group did, um, th those are no less significant um, uh, as a result of you know, being deployed across a 
you know, larger groups of people or larger economies. And, and so there is, I think, a kind of scale invariance to knowledge. Um, and, you know, you would, um, I, again, I think part of the intuition difference comes from, are you imagining sort of particular sigmoids uh, or are you imagining, um, you know, sets of sigmoids and like, how does the evolution, like what are the characteristics of, of um, the set of possible sigmoids and so on? And, you know, that all sounds kind of super abstract, but I, I suspect it can be made to a little bit more concrete. Um, but uh, I, I guess my kind of short answer would be that I, I'm not convinced that should be our prior. And I think in as much as it is, it actually predicts other things that substantially conflict with the worldview that I think most other people have and potentially the data we've seen so far. That's interesting because I thought it was actually matched to the data and maybe I'm, maybe I'm not understanding it right, but let me, actually, let me actually drill in on this a bit with a bit of an analogy. Like, so if, if you look at the growth of a company and I, I'm, I'm going to just guess that the following applies to Stripe um, for, as an example, um, and you measured sort of employee productivity as uh, like the percent increase in revenue, you know, divided by the number of employees that you have. Typically, you know, companies, if they're doing really well, they, they're growing at exponential rates of revenue, but they're also hiring employees like exponentially. Um, so like by the exact same metric and by the exact same logic, you would say we have declining employee productivity at our company, even as we're growing exponentially, because we have to grow our employee base exponentially in order to keep growing our revenue exponentially. Well, Isn't that I, essentially I, the same thing? I think the relevant question or comparison rather would be, um, you know, uh, the growth rate of aggregate startup market cap per startup employee uh, over time. Um, uh, like Stripe is a single idea, so to speak, uh, or at least you know, a, a small bundle of them. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think we're more analogous to, um, uh, you know, scaling a, a particular drug or, you know, a particular, you know, uh, drug family or, 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 or something. Um, and, I mean, I think it is empirically true that, you know, um, any approach is very, well, we'll necessarily see eventually, uh, you know, diminishing returns yielding some kind of S-curve. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, I think you'd have to look at the, the sort of uh, the employee productivity uh, uh, statistics across the entire sector. Uh, and I don't know where you'd necessarily get the data to do that, uh, but uh, if that was feasible, I think that actually be super interesting. Okay, I want to move on to some other topics. Um, what do you think about, uh, so compare and contrast effective altruism movement with uh, progress studies. And um, I would love to hear you comment, uh, 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 as part of this comment on um, the notion of existential risk or global catastrophic risk. On EA, um, well, I think with a lot of things actually, uh, you know, in assessing them, or with anything that's a kind of, um, you know, totalizing framework. And I don't mean that pejoratively. Uh, I, I just mean that like, what, you know, um, in principle, everyone could have an EA mindset. And uh, I'm sure at least some EA members think that everyone should have an EA oriented mindset. Um, uh, so, you know, 
so you, you can then sort of ask the question of, well, would it be good for everyone to have an EA mindset? But of course, the other way of asking it is like, well, is EA on the current margin uh, sort of a, you know, a, a good new way for people to be thinking? Uh, and would it be good instead of zero people, you know, before the EA movement to be thinking in EA oriented fashion, uh, would it be good for 5% of people or for 10% of people to be thinking that way? And in the latter sense, like, was it a good shift on the margin? I think EA has been great. Uh, and uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sort of delighted that they've uh, kind of have the, that they have had the progress they, they've had. Um, you know, if the question is, well, kind of should everyone be an EA um, or, uh, uh, you know, even I guess, you know, in the individual sense, you know, am I or, or, or you know, do I think I should be an EA? Um, uh, I think, and you know, obviously there's kind of heterogeneity within the field, but my general sense is that, I mean, the EA movement is obviously very focused on kind of on rigid, uh, not rigid, that's, that's unfair perhaps, uh, but on, on sort of estimation, analytical, uh, you know, quantification uh, and, um, and uh, sort of utilitarian calculation. Uh, and I think that that as a practical matter means that you end up too focused on that which you can measure, which again means, or as a practical matter means, you're too focused on things that are sort of short term. Um, uh, you know, bed nets or, or, or deworming or whatever being kind of obvious examples. And like, are those good causes? I, I would say almost definitely yes. Obviously, now we've seen some new data over the last couple of years that maybe not as good as they initially seemed, but like, they're, they're almost, they're, they're very likely to be really good things to do. Um, uh, but it's hard for me to see how, you know, writing um, a treatise of human nature would score really highly uh, in an EA-oriented framework, and yet, you know, as assessed ex post, that looked like a really valuable thing for Hume to do. Um, and similarly, as we kind of look at the things that in hindsight seem like very good things to have happened in the world, it's often unclear to me how an EA-oriented intuition might have caused somebody to do so. And so I guess I think of EA as sort of like a metal detector uh, in the sort of um, in the backyard of good things to do, and they've invented a new kind of metal detector that's really good at detecting, you know, some metals that other detectors are not very good at detecting. But I actually think we need some diversity in, you know, the the, the different uh, uh, metallic uh, substances, you know, to, to, to which our, our our detectors are tuned. Uh, and for me, it would not be the only one. Good, good, good metaphor. Um, and what about the particularly sort of concerns about? Um, global catastrophic risk or existential risks, especially from technology. This is where I get sort of the most, I won't even say pushback exactly, but concern from, um, uh, from people about progress study is, is the question of, well, if we just run full throttle uh, ahead with progress, um, what about the risk of that, you know, we're just not careful enough and we get some yeah. catastrophe? Um, well, I think it is probably true that the optimal rate of technological change uh, is not, uh, you know, it is not kind of um, uh, monotonically better, uh, the, the, the more that there is. Uh, uh, there probably are kind of sheer forces with society at a certain point. I think the question is to, as a practical matter, should our concern be having too much or having too little? Um, and actually, but I should say, I don't want to conflate progress in progress studies with purely technological advancement, um, uh, but, but it's a significant part of it. Um, uh, and um, 
generally, I think, well, <laughs> looking historically, I think that um, uh, too little has been a problem far more frequently than too much. I think today, in many you know, super obvious ways, uh, we have um, like too many lives are not as good as they obviously could be. Um, uh, and so in, in a very tangible sense, we have too little progress. Um, and I, I think there are very valid ways in which one could imagine having too much. Um, but I guess, you know, um, I feel sort of, you know, for every one unit of concern I give to too much, I give sort of four or five to, you know, we have too little. Um, uh, now, there is an asymmetry there where the, uh, I mean, the existential risks are kind of by definition existential. Um, and, um, you know, I thought Toby Ord's book was, was a great contribution. And broadly, I think the existential risk folks, again, have introduced a good line of thinking uh, that, you know, we really should be taking seriously. Um, I suspect that it's possible to mit mitigate most of those risks relatively effectively without redirecting vast swathes of society. Uh, and I think the, I think the more difficult problem will actually be how do we generate enough? This is a good segue to one of the last questions I want to ask you. I've got, I've got two more and then we'll go to uh, questions for the audience. So um, your Twitter bio describes you as fallibilist optimist. What do those terms mean and why did you choose them to describe you? Um, well, um, the, the first thing that came to me when, you know, the bio fields uh, uh, appeared in front of me, but um, uh, I guess fallibilist and um, the thing that I like about it is, um, um, what, what does it mean? Can you just, okay. Uh, 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 well, um, that, uh, the, the notion that you're, you're, you're never going to be, uh, uh, you're never going to be perfectly right. Uh, and that you are always seeking, you are aware that, uh, your mental models and explanations and theories are always wrong. Uh, and uh, um, accepting and you know, maybe even embracing, although I guess a strict reading of the term does not imply embracing, uh, the fact that uh, you're, you're engaged in this ongoing process of error correction. Um, and you know, in, in David Deutsch's, uh, who's you know, uh, done you know, some work to kind of popularize this term, um, uh, you know, he, he, he emphasizes, I think, uh, a lot of his thinking is derived from um, uh, from uh, from Karl Popper, and I don't know that he ever you know materially differs from Popper, but he does place emphasis uh, in kind of different ways. Uh, and you know, I really like the weight that he places on explanations as the kind of focal point uh, uh, for kind of what we are or sort of should be engaged in. And you know, there's a lot of you know he, he talks about sort of um, uh, it, it's easy to get into a kind of justificationist mindset where you're always seeking justifications for your beliefs. Whereas I think for him, it's all about the pursuit of uh, better explanations for why the world is the way it is and how it could be otherwise, um, and accepting uh, that every explanation you ever have is eventually, by someone, uh, going to be superseded by one that sort of fits reality, uh, uh, you know, th th that much better. And so I, I really like that that, that mindset of um, uh, accepting that we're always in error uh, and uh, and in the, engage in the process of uh, uh, iterated refinement. Uh, of our of our understanding, um, 
Uh, optimist uh, is, um, well, I, I consider myself an optimist in the sort of um, simple sense of the term. Um, I, uh, I, I see being an optimist as kind of like a Pascal's wager uh, or similar arguments applying uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, whether or not being optimistic turns out to be, uh, you know, on my deathbed, uh, the correct stance. I think I'll have enjoyed life more along the way uh, by, by choosing that path. Um, uh, but you, you can question the epistemic integrity of that at least a little bit. Um, I, I also separately like uh, uh, Deutsch's uh, sort of conception of optimism that all problems are caused by a lack of knowledge. Um, and again, that, that's, that's a particular perspective on it. Um, and, um, uh, or, you know, maybe all problems that have solutions that are not forbidden by the laws of physics or something uh, can be solved by, by, by having more knowledge uh, and, or the right knowledge. And um, I don't know that's always the most helpful perspective to have on problems, but I think it is an underheld perspective on them. And I think, there, there, I mean, there is a deep way in which that's true. Uh, and uh, it was quite revelatory to me when, uh, when I first heard it. Great. Okay, final question. This is the question I ask everybody uh, at, the, at the end. And this is especially for the high school students in the audience. Um, what advice that is commonly given to teenagers uh, do you think is actually wrong? And what would you replace it with? Hmm. Um... Hmm. Um, I think what I, what advice I was given as a teenager, um, or that you have heard given to other yeah, teenagers, yeah. Or given generally, you know, common wisdom for teens that's uh, should be upended. I think that um, I worry a bit about um, like realizing or thinking of oneself um, too soon as precocious or, or you know super talented uh, in that. You know, if one is super talented, probably, uh, you know, maybe you start to kind of realize that at age, you know, 13, um, but there's still just an awful lot that you need to learn. And I sometimes worry that um, it's easy to encourage people to, to, to kind of um, skip over the learning that, you know, should in fact, or, or sort of needs to happen. Um, and there's maybe a flip side to some of these kind of gifted uh, youth programs where, you know, do, do they, <laughs> like, I guess it probably depends on the individual, but uh, do they kind of um, make you think, man, uh, I, I'm sort of capable of more than I thought, or do they make you think, man, I, do they make you think that you're sort of even more capable than you in fact are? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I myself am a huge believer in what teenagers can do. Uh, and in fact, on the advice of my website, uh, I, uh, I try to, you know, encourage teenagers to, to you know, in general, upgrade their estimation uh, uh, of themselves. Uh, and uh, I think for me, that was, that was something that, um, that I had to hear. And I was lucky enough, some people told me. 
But for the teenagers who are here, uh, and, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, who are lucky enough to have uh, discovered uh, your course, um, I think maybe they should also uh, um, just be wary of potential overcorrection. Uh, and that if you're in fact a teenager listening to this, there probably are five or 10 more years uh, of, of knowledge acquisition, of understanding deepening uh, that you should engage in before you know, potentially committing to, uh, uh, I don't know, um, definitive courses of action. All right, great. And uh, just so everybody knows, Patrick has a website, patrickcollison.com, where he has a bunch of um, links and writings, including an advice page for uh, teens, basically. Um, and uh, and he has promised to write uh, the advice for uh, for what twenty for people in their twenties once he hits thirty five to forty, which I don't even know when that is. And well, um, not even then, maybe that just it definitely feels premature right now. <laughs> and uh, you can also follow him on Twitter at Patrick C. Uh, Patrick, anywhere else that you would like uh, people to to follow you or can? No, no, God, uh, my website and Twitter is for most people probably already too much. Okay, great. So let's go to um, some questions from the audience. We have, uh, and, we'll, and we'll do that for the next 15 minutes or so. Um, all right, we're giving first priority to some questions from our enrolled uh, students, which are coming to me through uh, a separate channel. Um, one of them is, uh, what do you think about the future of the internet as rate of adoption is slowing? Do you see it becoming increasingly zero sum slash less spending on R&D? Um, like, I guess my interpretation of this is if you think of broad, long, the long waves of technology and, and you think that uh, computing as a long wave is maybe starting to plateau, uh, yeah. then, you know, um, what does that imply for sort of like opportunities in computing and technology and investment there versus yeah. maybe future fields? Well, Two points, but I don't actually know. I don't, I don't know that I have a strong overall view on the question. And um, one is, as the internet becomes increasingly deeply enmeshed with society and the economy, I, I think we are still in the early stages of that deployment. I think that's kind of the, the, the relevant lens uh, through which to analyze it. Um, and I mean, at Stripe, we see so many businesses uh, where they are taking some kind of traditional sleepy sector. Uh, and building the software-enabled, uh, software-upgraded version of it, uh, and in the full space of possibilities there, uh, I think we're still very early. Uh, second thing is, we're still just so bad at building software. Um, our software sucks, our tools for building software sucks, um, and you know, maybe for some deep cognitive reasons or something we can't do very substantially better than we currently are, I hope that's not true, and my strong supposition is that it's not true. And so the sense that you know, we're somehow kind of plateauing, we're somehow uh, kind of uh, uh, maximizing that which is possible j just feels misguided to me. It, it still feels to me that we're, we're building you know, MS-DOS programs uh, and there are still many, many layers uh, beyond uh, that which we're currently realizing. Still day one. Yes. Um, great, okay, another question. Um, some people have suggested a Manhattan project for COVID-19. Is that what Fast Grants is doing? Uh, if not, is something like that, a, a Manhattan or Apollo project even feasible anymore? Um, I suspect it's not feasible. Uh, I think there was a kind of, well, a combination of 
sort of a fealty to the government slash big systems of the mid-century, plus, I mean, an actual world war that, you know, much and all as COVID is a major crisis, I think, uh, you know, it does not quite rise to that level of sort of perceived urgency. And so I think for both of those reasons, you could not actually corral all the best people and get them to move to uh, New Mexico. Um, uh, is that what, what Fast Friends are trying to do? Not, ex I mean, it depends what you mean by Manhattan Project. Uh, are we trying to better enable the best people? Yes, absolutely. Uh, are we trying to get them all to work closely together as part of a single coordinated hierarchical project? No, uh, we have no Robert Oppenheimer. Um, and um, uh, fortunately, I think, I mean, time will tell, uh, but I think that simply enabling the best people will actually prove sufficient. Great. Uh, you mentioned that uh, existential risk, the existential risk that comes with more progress could be mitigated. What do we need to do to mitigate those risks? Are there general philosophies that protect us or is it a question of specific measures in various fields? I don't know. Um, uh, I've, I've wondered about it quite a bit uh, and I've read, I mean, th th this is as probably a lot of folks here know, something that you know, top scientists uh, uh, and, um, and others wrote about sort of m mostly starting with the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, because it was, it was obviously so kind of uh, uh, you know, salient a, a question um, after the atom bomb. Um, I don't know yet. Okay, fair enough. Um, Okay, so somebody is reacting to your uh, your advice to keep learning, you know, another five to seven years uh, before committing to a career direction, and is pointing out, well, that's not what you did. Um, you went ahead and started a company when you were very young. So, uh, I'll, just paraphrasing, what gives? <laughs> um, that's well, not how he phrased it, but right. Um, uh, all I said was to kind of be wary of it, um, uh, and. I think that, um, well, I actually went back to college after starting my first company uh, be because of this uh, sort of concern. Uh, I, I thought I had not learned enough. Uh, and uh, I went back to study physics and I then decided sort of for separate reasons that physics um, wasn't, uh, wasn't the right field for me, kind of for two reasons. One, you know, I didn't think that I was as good as the best people in physics. And also I thought that even if I was, uh, just we didn't seem to be at a particularly kind of, you know, propitious time for great physics discoveries to be made. Like even the very best people weren't, I mean, uh, um, I think it was Bohr said that uh, uh, in the twenties, it was a time where second rate physicists could do first tier work. Uh, whereas it seemed to me that, you know, when I was in college, that even if I was a first tier physicist, I would in fact struggle uh, to do uh, second tier work. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, there, there's, there are certain kinds of um, like, I don't think you should conclude too much from my particular trajectory. There are certain kinds of innovations uh, that, uh, you know, were foreclosed to me um, uh, because, you know, in a sense, I, I stopped fairly early. Uh, and anything in biotech, uh, you know, certainly wasn't and, you know, may not be or won't be certainly unless I go and, you know, spend an awful long time learning um, uh, in, in, in the future. And so I think maybe with software, it's kind of more forgiving for, for various reasons for folks who have not acquired a whole lot of formal knowledge. And if you're sure that's the path you want to follow, you know, maybe that's fine. Uh, but uh, in a, basically, you're, you're actually pruning uh, quite a few 
you know, branches from the search space. Uh, and again, that, that could be fine, but I think you want to be cognizant that it is in fact what you're doing. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, all right. Let's see. I am going to, um, we've got a lot of questions and probably won't be able to get to all of them in the next uh, eight minutes. So I'm going to uh, sift, filter, and interpret a little bit. There's a couple of questions um, on the general theme of uh, big companies, companies getting big, um, needing effective organizational structures and hierarchies, and how to avoid maybe getting, you know, sort of more inefficient and less innovative. Um, as you have been growing Stripe for many years now and have, and have seen it grown from two people to many people, like how, what are your thoughts on this? And, and maybe you can tell us if, uh, if there's just any innovative things you've done within Stripe to sort of keep it, um, uh, you know, still day one, keep it innovative and nimble. Um, I think, um, I think the correlation between size and innovativeness is kind of sort of present, but, but imperfect in that, you know, most small organizations are actually highly, you know, non-innovative. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, of course, if you sort of, if, if you take the kind of selection bias of the innovative small organizations, maybe they, they look good, uh, you know, compared to the big ones, but uh, the most innovative parts of certain big ones will actually look very innovative uh, if you kind of, if you allow yourself kind of equivalent cherry picking, you know, uh, within the larger entities. So I, I think there's some questions as to kind of how exactly the comparison should be constructed. You know, in, uh, in, in a sense, all I, well, not all, but, um, a, um, a simple-minded view on, on the problem that I think is not necessarily totally wrong is uh, are you attracting really innovative people um, and how enabled are they? Uh, and those are two questions that John and I spend a lot of our time thinking about. Um, and, you know, it's, you, you, you can't measure the human capital of an organization by headcount. Uh, and, you know, uh, so what's the right composition? W what kinds of innovative thinking uh, do we in fact need? Um, uh, you know, on, on, what, on which axes is it most important for us to innovate? And then we try to do a lot of, both for Stripe as a product, but also for Stripe as an organization, a lot of customer interviews. Um, and, you know, just for people who have good ideas, how difficult or, 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 or straightforward is it uh, uh, for them to, uh, to, to get them realized? And not only is this is something that I obsess over, but it's, it's something that a lot of others at Stripe also take really seriously. Uh, and uh, in fact, um, uh, someone at Stripe uh, told me, uh, uh, I guess it was, uh, in fact, this week, uh, that uh, he sees his core job as maximizing the fraction of the time that someone really innovative at the company can go and, you know, in, in fact, realize their idea. Um, and, uh, I, I don't want to kind of say too much about other companies because, you know, in a sense, you know, I've never worked at any others or, or never worked at any others at any scale. Um, but I suspect just pursuing those two questions could actually get you a long way. Yep. Okay, another question from one of our students. Um, basically, how did you just, just found a company? How did you know where to start and what to do? Um, 
Well, we kind of just did. Uh, and both of my, um, my parents uh, were entrepreneurs in the sense that uh, our, my mom actually started a, a corporate training company uh, uh, shortly after I was born. Um, and uh, our, our dad ran a hotel when we were growing up and then he kind of got into property development. And so we thought when we were young that, um, you know, being an entrepreneur was, it was just a normal thing. Like probably if your parents are astronauts, you think that, you know, your parents being astronauts is like the normal thing to do. Uh, and uh, if your parents you know, are farmers then you think you know, being a farmer is a normal thing. And so when we were five-year-olds, you know, playing in the garden, you know, we were playing at starting companies uh, just because you know, that, that was just what you did. Um, uh, and so some of it was just, well, you know, you Google, you know, incorporate company and sort of follow the instructions. Uh, we, we were also lucky that uh, early on we got to know, uh, well, I actually known through programming Paul Graham and, and that then um, when he started Y Combinator, uh, uh, kind of got to know him in that context as well. Uh, and YC helped us with, with both of the, excuse me, both of the companies uh, that we started. Uh, and, and that was certainly very helpful. Uh, but um, kind of just doing it can actually get you surprisingly far. Yes. <laughs> um, what do you think about uh, studying liberal arts if you're in college for technology? I would probably, I think culture is hugely important. And if one, you know, views liberal arts in some ways as a um, study of and you know, determinant to some extent of culture. Um, uh, I think it's a it's a hugely important topic. Um, I <laughs> I think you'd really want to make sure that you're studying the right works um, uh, and sort of the right philosophies um, uh, in order to. Like, it's a bit like saying, well, you know, should you, um, right analogy, um, I mean, should you study art? I mean, it, it kind of depends on like which art and, and I guess our art maybe does not have instrumental purpose, you know, necessarily. I mean, it, depending on your purpose, it could, but you know, if, if it's just kind of aesthetic appreciation, maybe it doesn't matter as much which kinds of art you study. So I guess maybe it depends on why the questioner is asking, but in as much as somebody here in a progress studies conversation is asking about studying liberal arts. Um, yeah, I, I, I think making sure you're studying the right works is probably the key question. Uh, but, uh, and again, it's not that I definitely know what they are, but just being very thoughtful about that. Um, and, uh, but, but if you have some theory as to how you can identify the right work, ideally a kind of unique perspective on that, then I think it could be super high return. Like, I mean, I, I, I was wondering just today, you know, it would be so interesting and maybe this exists. I mean, I would love a pointer if it does, but like, you know, the, um, the, the Song dynasty in China and like the Mughal empire uh, in, in India uh, and you know, various European kind of enlightenment cultures, like they're all in their different ways really productive. And has anyone sort of done a study of the commonalities and differences uh, across, you know, whatever the author identifies to be uh, you know, really uh, innovative, productive cultures. Uh, again, maybe that exists and would love to read it if so. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I strongly agree that uh, a kind of liberal arts perspective on some of these questions uh, would be uh, and is very valuable. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, great. Well, I think we are just about at the bottom of the hour and um, I don't want to keep you any longer. I'm sure you have a ton of work to do and maybe even meetings. So 
thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thanks for being here. I'm sure we could have talked another hour and had a, a, a great conversation. Maybe you will uh, uh, come back and join us again sometime in the future. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a good one. Thank you, everybody, uh, for coming. And if you haven't applied to Progress Studies for Young Scholars, please uh, go to progressstudies.school and check it out. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>